Well, good morning, Hillcrest. Good to see uh, each and every one of you here this morning. 11 o'clock worship at our Nine Mile campus. And a special welcome to those of you that uh, continue to worship with us in our online uh, community. Welcome to all of you, Hillcrest family and friends, wherever you may be. We're so delighted to be able to welcome everyone to Lord's Day worship. And I'm always excited to be in the community of the saints, in the presence of the Lord, to worship the risen Savior, the true and living God, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's give it all up for the Lord Jesus Christ this morning and say thank you to Him for the blessing of worship. The passage of Scripture I should like to call your attention to this morning is found in the Gospel of Luke in the first chapter. Luke is the third Gospel, Matthew, Mark, and then the Gospel of Luke. We're in a series of messages, for those of you who may be new with us this morning, <clears throat> on basic Christian doctrine. It's important for us not only to be able to say that we believe the Bible, but to know exactly what it is from the Bible that we actually believe. There are some non-negotiables in a series of messages on what we believe as believers. If we were to cover every single topic, we would never have another sermon series until Christ comes again because there are more topics about our faith and specific things we believe about our faith than we possibly have a lifetime of Sundays to even get to. But the reality is there are some things that comprise first among equals, some things which are absolute non-negotiables that you can separate out and explicate and understand and understand them we must if we're to be genuine orthodox believers who give a consistent and correct witness to those who are lost and who need to be saved. So what we're doing is we're looking at some of these absolute non-negotiables using as our template, as our foundation, uh, a confession of faith that has been around in the church for almost the entirety of the 2,000-year history of the church, and that is the Apostles' Creed. Creeds are not the Bible, but for them to be effective, they have to be based on the Bible. We believe that the Bible is the authoritative, infallible, inerrant, trustworthy Word of the living God. But creeds help us to properly articulate what it is about the Bible that we find most significant in terms of what we must believe to propagate an authentic gospel faith. A creed is just a confession of faith. It simplifies the core convictions of what it is we believe, and it should do so in a way that is understandable and in a way that's memorable. There are numbers of different creeds that the church has used through the years, far more even in a number of Christian confessions, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed. But then there's the Apostles' Creed, formulated by the early church fathers, the leaders, some 200 to 300 years after the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2. So it's been around for a long time. It's the shortest of the historic creeds, which make it, makes it the most memorable. And it's certainly the oldest of the creeds. It doesn't cover everything, but it covers the essentials of what we not only can know, but what we should know. And up to this point, we have unpacked a couple of things about God that we must believe. I believe in God the Father Almighty, the creed begins. 
creator of heaven and earth. And so we've seen how God is creator of all and that God is a personal Father God to those who have faith. And then we looked in a summary way at the beginning of what the Creed says about the Lord Jesus Christ. The Creed has more to say about Jesus Christ than any other single subject within the Creed. In fact, some two-thirds of the entire Creed, short as it is, has something to do directly with the person or work of Jesus Christ. And this is what makes it a sure enough Christian Creed, because it has more to say about Jesus than any other single topic. Last week, we summarized Jesus as the second person of the Godhead, the Trinitarian God. God is Father, but God is also Son. God is the visible God. Come to us, down to our level in the person of Jesus Christ. Today, we continue to unpack what the Creed says about the person of Jesus Christ, His identity, by looking at a mysterious but absolutely critical fundamental of our faith concerning Jesus. And that is namely the virgin birth or the virgin conception, as it's sometimes referred to, of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our subject today. I believe in the virgin birth. Several years ago, David Letterman was interviewing Larry King, the radio and television talk show host that you used to be able to watch every night on CNN. Larry King was one of the great historic radio and television talk show host personalities who's ever lived, identified, of course, by that unique, sonorous voice of his. Larry King was a guest of David Letterman, and David Letterman asked him, man, you've interviewed more people probably than anybody else alive. But of all the people that you have not interviewed, living or dead, if you could interview any one person that you've never interviewed, who would it be? And almost without hesitation, Larry King said, you know what? If I could interview anybody in human history, I'd interview Jesus Christ. Now, mind you, Larry King is Jewish. And so this is an unusual answer coming from a man who is basically of the Orthodox Jewish persuasion. And David Letterman found that as ironic as many of us did when we first heard it. And he said, why would you do that? Why would you interview Jesus Christ? And if you did, what would you ask him? And he said, well, if I could interview Jesus, the first thing that I would ask him is, were you really born of a virgin? Now, that indicates to me that that's something that Larry King had been grappling with for a long time. And it was probably the one core concept that kept him from crossing over the line from Orthodox Judaism to become a follower of Jesus Christ, crossing the bridge of faith. There was one hurdle he had more difficulty with crossing over than any other hurdle in terms of becoming a Christian, it would have been that hurdle. If that's the first question that he would ask him, it makes sense that this is the biggest stumbling block. Are you really born of a virgin? And indeed, that becomes at least as much, if not the most, significant stumbling block in the lives of most people who refuse to become followers of Jesus once hearing the clear message of the gospel. Because the virgin birth is one of the great mysteries of the Bible. It defies human logic. It defies the English language in terms of its ability to properly explain and properly articulate it 
So it becomes a stumbling block to many people, but there's no way to minimize just how important the doctrine of the virgin birth or the virgin conception of Christ actually is, not only as it relates to the true identity of the Lord Jesus Christ, but also to the Christian faith as a whole. The Australian theologian Michael Byrd once said that the Christian faith is a Christmas faith. And I really like that. So what do you all say about having a little Christmas celebration here in the month of August? That'd be okay with everybody? Because we got to go back to the very beginning of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is exactly what we celebrate in the month of December every year as a people of God. And we need to examine it today because it is absolutely true that the Christian faith is indeed a Christmas faith. And this is why the virgin birth is so prominently positioned in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Father, we pray that this morning you would take this great, awesome, significant, and yet very mysterious, difficult-to-grasp concept, and through the Word of God and by the Spirit of God, touch our minds and our hearts, that the deepest part of our being as people, we might grasp it and embrace it as truly and eternally significant. Teach us now, and may it shape our lives so that we become more committed followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Christmas in August. Let's talk about it for a few minutes today, beginning uh, with the virgin herself, because does it not make sense that to have a virgin birth means you first have to have a virgin? Amen. And that takes us, of course, to the earthly mother of the Lord Jesus Christ, Mary. Matthew gives us a bit of an understanding of the birth narrative of the Lord Jesus Christ, but more so from the perspective of Jesus' earthly father, whose name was Joseph. Matthew talks quite a bit about Joseph in his gospel, very little about Mary. Luke, on the other hand, and those two gospel writers are the only two gospel writers that give us birth narratives of Jesus at all. Mark nor John give us any indication about how Jesus was born, but Matthew and Luke both do. And when Luke tells us, he mentions almost nothing of Joseph, but has this wide swath of narrative dealing with the mother of Jesus, Mary. has a very detailed account of the angel's visit to Mary. Mary, of course, becomes a very important and indeed a very controversial figure, not only as it related to the birth of Christ, but throughout all of Christian history. Best place, I think, to examine The virgin birth biblically is by looking at the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And so would you join me in verse 26? And I'm going to read this in sections as we go throughout our teaching this morning. So just kind of keep up with me. And if you don't have a Bible, the words will be on the screen at the appropriate times. In the sixth month of the angel Gabriel, or in the sixth month rather, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. 
But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now, if you read back a little bit earlier, you will find a similar kind of birth announcement going to two different people, namely to Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, upon the conception, natural conception, of their son-to-be, who would become known as John the Baptist. And the Bible says that in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, where she is great with child to John the baptizer, the angel Gabriel visits yet again another woman, this time not an old woman like Elizabeth, but a very young woman who wasn't really even a woman at all, but still a, an adolescent whose name was Mary. She lived out in the middle of nowhere, and yet this young woman-to-be is the recipient of the most important birth announcement in the history of the world. That's the first thing that you need to notice. Out of all the people on the earth whom God would call to bear the Savior of the world, God chose this young, middle-aged school, uh, school girl who is probably still applying clear to her face to clear up the acne pimples to be the mother of the Son of God. She'd done nothing of notoriety. She lived out in a one-horse town north of Jerusalem. Done nothing with her life worth noticing. And this is really a statement, once again, about the sovereign grace of God. If you were to ask me today, why did God chose Mary? The only way that I could answer that biblically and appropriately would, say, would be to say, because God chose Mary. There's no other reason or rationale given. Why does God choose anybody that He chooses in the Scripture revelation? Why did God choose David and not one of His brothers? Why did God choose Moses? Why did God choose Gideon? Why did God choose any of the great leaders that God chose to set His hand upon and His grace upon? We have no answer to that question other than the fact that God is a God of love and kindness, a God of mercy and grace, and God chooses whomever He will to accomplish His purpose in the way that God Himself can get maximum glory from it. Which means most of the time He's going to choose an underdog. Most of the time He's going to choose somebody that's weak. Theologians call that the underdog motif that runs through the Bible. And one character right after another. They would not be characters that we would choose. They would not have resumes that would be impressive. And yet this is how God tends to operate. And the end result is when something great is accomplished in and through their life, there's no way that that person can get the credit for it. Only God can get the glory. So God chose Mary. Adolescent girl who'd done nothing deserving, and he sets his love on her. And that's what we can know about her. The angel says to her, you have found favor with God. Not because of anything she'd done, by the way, simply because God had graced her. The word favor and the word grace, basically the same word in the Greek New Testament. Charis. To receive the grace of God is to have the favor of God. To have the favor of God is to be the recipient of the grace of God. So when the Bible says that Mary had found favor with God, another way to say that is that Mary had been graced 
by God. Graced by God to accomplish this special, unique, not only once in a lifetime, but once in all of human history purpose. To bear the very Son of God. Man, I'm telling you, no greeting in all of human history has been more significant than this angelic greeting to Mary, and no greeting has caused more misunderstanding through church history and Christian history than this greeting either. Our friends in the Roman Catholic tradition, and some of you all have come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ or a further development in your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ out of the Roman Catholic tradition. I'm not anti-Catholic, by the way. I believe that many, many Catholics are born again by faith in Jesus Christ. But I don't believe that you can become a Christian by attaching yourself to the institutional church and having another human being minister grace out to you. I believe that you become a Christian by the sovereign choice of God through the exercising of individual faith apart from the church. This is what typically distinguishes us from our Roman Catholic friend. I know that throughout history, one of the distinguishing marks has been our understanding of, of Mary. Our Catholic friends have tended to view Mary as a source of grace rather than as an object of grace like every single one of us. In fact, many Catholics are taught to pray to Mary from the time of their childhood. They're taught that Mary never sinned, that Mary never had sex with another man, that she remained what's known as a perpetual virgin. They believe Mary is able to minister grace to sinners. And so Mary kind of becomes an on par with the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of who she is and how she operates. But the Bible never says, Mary, blessed art thou above women. The Bible says, blessed art thou amongst women. God had called her for a very unique and special role. And yet, the Bible never teaches us to pray to Mary, to venerate Mary, to deify Mary. Many of our Catholic brothers and sisters do that. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. And you can turn on a Catholic channel on television, and oftentimes they will have a portion of a program that's devoted to the Hail Mary prayer. And over and over and over and over again, this prayer will simply be chanted and repeated. And yet, it's not a biblical prayer. Because the Bible never teaches any of those things about Mary. It doesn't teach that Mary was without sin, that she remained a virgin, that she has grace to give others. What it does teach is that she received the grace of God in the sense that God sovereignly chose her to be the mother of the Son of God. And in this sense, Mary kind of becomes an example for all of us. God chose Mary not because she was more deserving than anybody else. God could have chosen anybody that He wanted to. But God chose Mary simply by His grace in the same way that He chose all of the great heroes of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Gideon, David, Saul, later becoming known as Paul, or anybody else for that matter. God shows grace then, and God shows grace to all of us, the lowest and the least, and that's what we learn from Mary. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us deserve to be judged. None of us deserves to be saved. 
But the great picture of grace that God gives us all is found in Jesus Christ because God demonstrates His own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God had a purpose for Mary according to His sovereign plan for her life. And that purpose, speaking of that, indeed involved a plan. And you see the plan beginning to unfold here in Luke chapter 1 and verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name, what? Say it out loud, please. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. And will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now that right there, that little paragraph right there is what we call the birth announcement of the Lord Jesus Christ, where the angel announces the birth of the one he describes as the Son of the Most High, the one he'll later call just simply the Son of God. Now, the Son of God needed a name because he was going to be born of a human mother, and you shall call his name, the angel says, you shall call his name what? Jesus, Yeshua. Names are significant. And even before his birth, his name would become a testimony of his primary work, ultimately demonstrated by his death on the cross. You know what Yeshua, Jesus, means? It means the Lord is what? Salvation. And that's why the angel would tell Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. Man, names matter. Names are important. We tend to study about names we're going to give to children that are born to us. We get the baby books and we look at the meaning of the names and the derivation of the name. Sometimes we give a name based on someone that we admire or someone that we love very much. Sometimes we give a name simply because we like the rhythmic nature of the name. We like the way that it sounds. Name selection is going on in my family. I'm having a grandbaby. I told you I'm having a grandbaby born. I've already made my sovereign will about the name known. Yeah, and that's what I got in return. Just a bunch of laughter, a bunch of chuckles. Now, I'm not sovereign when it comes to that. And there has been debate. And dialogue and all of that. Because names matter. Persons God carry a name for life. And that was true with Jesus. And what an appropriate name that he was given. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So this is obviously not just any child that's getting ready to be born to Mary. This is the birth announcement of the very Son of God. Son of God is not a name, it's a title, a title appropriately given to the one who would be the sin bearer, the Savior of the world, because that title, Son of God, distinguishes Jesus as absolutely unique. He's the second person of the Godhead, the Trinitarian Godhead, who is Father, who is Spirit, but then thirdly, He is also Son, God the Son, second person 
of the Trinitarian Godhead. The Bible says here in this description of the child, he shall be great. Interestingly, if we could go back and read the message of the angel concerning the birth of John the Baptist, Zechariah was told that John the Baptist, the one who was to be born to his wife, he shall be called great. He shall be great before the Lord. But as it relates to Jesus, Mary is told, He shall not be called great. He shall not be great before the Lord. He just will be great. And you know why? Because He is the Lord. Unlike John the Baptist. In fact, later on, the angel will say, He shall be called holy sinless, pure, pristine, set apart for a very unique service to God. All of that, by the way, was prophesied by the Old Testament preachers in the Bible. That's language that's used to describe the coming of the Messiah, the deliverer of Israel, the Savior of the world. Now, having said all of that, can you imagine this young, small, insignificant, Teenage girl, maybe teenage girl, hearing all of that and trying to process it. You imagine how confused she likely was, how troubled that she must have been. She's certainly old enough to put two and two together. No, she'd never slept with a man and yet was going to become pregnant. She begins to think about how others are going to sense that, how others are going to view it scandal that that's likely going to cause. I don't think she disbelieves the angel. Zechariah heard it and doubted. And he was struck mute because of his lack of faith. There's no indication that Mary ever doubted the angel. She just didn't understand what any of that meant. How it was going to happen. And with good reason. Verse 34, and, the, and Mary said to the angel, how will this be? Since I'm a what? Since I'm a virgin. It's a great question. How will this be? Some translations render it, how can this be? You know why that's a significant question? Because as it relates to the virgin birth, the virgin conception of Christ, people still ask that question today. How can this be if she was a virgin? It's just too dramatic too incredulous to believe? That was the question Larry King was asking and probably had been asking for decades. How can that be? She was a virgin. How can a man be born of a virgin? One thing I think it's important to remember is who's writing this. The Gospel of Luke was written by, it's not a trick question, Luke, that's right. And what was Luke's occupation? He was a medical doctor. So if there's anybody in the Bible that knows how a baby's born, it's this guy. Which is why that's really significant. He knows how babies are made. And he also knew that this was no normal baby. By the time of this announcement, Mary is already engaged to be married to a descendant of David, whose name was Joseph of Nazareth. The process of marriage was different back then. But it is today, radically so. There'd be a long engagement period. Usually it was an arranged marriage where parents would 
put the two together, and it would not be at all uncommon that the husband was much older than the bride. The engagement would last somewhere around a year, and the couple did not live together during that period of time. They didn't have sexual relationships with one another, but the engagement was considered a legality. So in a situation like this, where you had somebody get pregnant, you knew it wasn't by you, you could put that person away. In other words, you could dissolve the engagement period. You could dissolve the relationship. That was considered obviously adultery, and it became grounds for a formal divorce. And it explains why Joseph, until the angel shows up and intervenes in the life of Joseph, it explains why Joseph had made the determination to do that very thing. Away with you. I'm not going to make a big deal, and I'm not going to hire a New York attorney to do this. We're going to do it quietly and under the radar screen, but I can't have my family stained by what you've done to discredit our good reputation. And yet, Matthew and Luke go out of their way to say, Mary didn't do anything wrong. She didn't violate any of the tenets of the engagement. She was a virgin. And she was still saving herself and her sexual purity for her husband. But Joseph didn't get it. And that's why he needed an angelic intervention just like she did. And the Lord was gracious enough to give it to him in Matthew 1. Joseph took his wife after that intervention, verse 24, but knew her not. In other words, he did not sleep with her. He knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. But at this stage of the game, Mary still lacks understanding. All of that was still ahead of Mary. She still doesn't get the picture, and her confusion is completely understandable. How can this be? How will this be? How is this going to happen? And by grace, the angel helps her try to grasp that. Verse 35, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Would you repeat verse 37 with me together? For nothing will be impossible with God. Say it again. For nothing will be impossible with God. Now, this is what you call a complete supernatural action. It's supernatural, but Luke presents it as absolute fact. God the Father, by means of God the Holy Spirit, came upon and overshadowed young Mary. Overshadowed her. It's a supernatural coming upon her by means of the Holy Spirit that this preacher, nor any other preacher, can properly explain to you how that happened. It was something overshadowing, overwhelming. It was an act of grace. And we can't explain it. 
It's contrary to the laws of nature concerning how babies are made. And that's what makes it a miracle, by the way. This is the unique birth in the history of the world, the miraculous birth in the history of the world. Listen, I know we call the birth of every baby a miracle, but it's really not a miracle. I can tell you exactly how your baby was made. I can tell you the scientific process. We can all get a textbook and open it up and see pictures of sperms and eggs and how the coming together of a man and woman bring together those two living organisms in such a way that cells begin to multiply and chromosomes begin to be formed and development takes place. That's why technically the birth of babies today is not miraculous. I mean, it's overwhelming, and your emotions are never as high, and that's probably one reason we refer to them as miracles. And I wept uncontrollably at the birth of both of my children, and you probably did too. But this is a miracle right here. Because ain't no explaining this, Lucy. You can't explain it by the laws of nature. No textbook can, can help unpack how this takes place. And this is part of the reason, by the way, too, why most people in the world will never believe in the virgin conception and the virgin birth of Christ. You know why most people don't believe it? Because most people doubt the supernatural power of God. And if you doubt the supernatural power of God, you'll never believe that God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning. You'll never believe the dead people were actually raised back to life. You'll never believe uh, that Jesus Christ died and was buried and three days later rose again from the dead. You'll never believe that Jesus Christ ascended into heaven. You'll never believe that Jesus is coming again. You'll never believe that one day God will radically reorder and recreate the heavens and the earth into a new heaven and a new earth. Listen, you can't be an Orthodox Christian, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, and doubt the supernatural power of God because it's all based on the supernatural power of God. You have to believe in the supernatural power of God and you have to believe in the virgin birth of Christ. It is impossible to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and be a skeptic concerning the virgin birth. These two things are the most controversial parts about our faith. The virgin birth of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. There aren't two things about Christianity that are more dialogued about, more debated, more pages written about than those two concepts concerning Jesus. His virgin birth, His bodily resurrection, and yet the reality is you take either of those away, much less both of them away, and the Christian faith crumbles to the ground like a stack of Jenga sticks when you remove the wrong stick. It's over. If Jesus is not bodily raised from the dead, and if Jesus was not born of a virgin, you cannot have Christianity without a virgin birth. It is a 100% necessity. And you know why? Because if Jesus had been born simply of an earthly father and an earthly mother, 
he would have just been another human being. He'd have come into this world just like you did. Sinful to the core, full of depravity, and that would have instantly disqualified him as the perfect substitutionary sacrifice to die on the cross. Listen, if Jesus got a father, an earthly father's DNA in him, disqualified from the cross. We have, and listen, we're done if he's not born of a virgin. We're still in our sins. We're still separated from God. We're lost, and we're all bound for a devil's hell. You have to have a God-man. And that's why the virgin conception is critical. He has, Jesus has to be distinct from sin to bear your sin in his death on the cross. Everybody with me, would you nod your head? That's non-negotiable. And that's what's in the Apostles' Creed right up front for you to memorize and to state with conviction. God made him who had no sin to become sin in our place that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That verse has no meaning whatsoever unless Jesus is born of a virgin. That's why to deny the virgin birth is to deny the Christian faith. Now, we can, we can get into some great discussions about how it happened and why it happened and what about Mary's DNA and did Jesus have any of that? We can talk about that until the cows come home, but I ain't going to talk about it that long because I'm not a scientist and I don't understand it anyway. But we can dialogue about it, and many people have and often do. But let me tell you one thing you can't do with respect to the virgin birth. You cannot hear about it. Roll your eyes and say, oh, well, yeah, I know we've talked about that. But nobody believes that anymore. I say it again. If there's no virgin birth, we're all sunk. Because without the virgin birth, there's no unique Christ. No God-man. And if there's no God-man, then there's no sinless Savior. If there's no sinless Savior, there's no power in the cross. If there's no power in the cross, there's no hope for the world. But there is hope for the world. Paul would write the Corinthians, if in this life only, in the here and now, with respect to the physical dimension of life, if in this life only we have hope, we're of all men and women the most to be pitied. But we do have hope. And it's because of those two critical non-negotiables, because we believe that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin, died on the cross, and rose again from the dead. Because we believe that, we have hope in a better day to come. Dr. Michael Byrd was right. The Christian faith is a Christmas faith, and don't you ever forget it. And the Apostles' Creed is quick to confirm it. I believe in Jesus Christ God's only Son, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, 
And it's another outstandingly great reminder of the absolute and eternal truth that was sure for Mary and sure for you, regardless of what impossibility you yourself may be facing today, the absolute truth then and now is something worth shouting about. Namely, nothing is impossible with God. This is God's Word. And let all who agree say, Amen. Amen.